This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody. Uh, we got a bunch of things to talk about. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly, right here on Bloomberg Radio. We got to talk about that headline. So that just much crossed. to talk about. Yes. I, when those redheads cross the <laughs> Bloomberg, Carol, we got to jump on it. Uh, you heard Charlie Pellet talk about it just then. The yeah. New York Times reporting that Goldman CEO Lloyd Blankfein is said likely to. St- Sorry, to step down in December uh, and likely to be replaced, of course, not by a surprise, David Selman. right? Not a surprise. The question has been not who but when. Mm-hmm. And as you and I discussed on our Bloomberg Business Week uh, television show a few weeks back, yeah, uh, this succession has been long speculated about. Uh, David Solomon, of course, was named the sole co- sole president, not the co president, uh, just. Earlier this year, and uh, and this is the Harvey that, Schwartz, of course, uh, leaving the the company right. because of that. And this is a guy with a, a diverse background. He's got investment banking expertise, um, and so what? Not it, just investment banking expertise, uh, David Solomon. He is also DJ D Saul. He is a <laughs> DJ no on the weekends. That is true. That is true. Highly sought after. What does it mean, though? That I mean, Lloyd Blankfein, so associated, saw the firm through the crisis. Um, was this kind of his planning as well? You think, or what? It feels like his plan. I mean, he yeah. apparently, from based on reporting from Bloomberg and, and elsewhere over the past few weeks, I mean, he has presented this plan to the board. And it is amazing. You know, you think about as we stare down the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis, amazing, right? you know, you had Lloyd Blankfein, uh, who really endured, Jamie Dimon, you know, the two of them being really the only two CEOs who literally survived the aftermath. And, and you could argue really thrived in, in the aftermath and have built two very impressive firms. Succession is something that is always, always talked about uh, right. at these big firms. Blank Finds had a heck of a run. And, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see what we'll see what happens next. And we've seen a lot of this in terms of financial firms, not just Wall Street banks and the big Wall Street firms, but we've also seen it in the private equity world. Everybody kind of laying down uh, who's to, you know, whether it's KKR, whether it's, I think, Blackstone. Right? Well, a Blackstone. Lot and yeah. I think, you know, we want to talk about that next. Yeah. Blackstone earlier this year, uh, also right around the same time, actually, that that news came out around about Goldman a few months ago, Jonathan Gray was named the president succeeding Tony James, who remains at the firm. Steve Schwartz is still firmly in the chair as CEO. But what's interesting when you start to talk about John Gray is he had a number of big deals, but his signature deal was the deal that he made in July of 2007 to take Hilton Worldwide private. Talk about kind of at the top when it, it came to real tippy, estate. tippy, top. You know, it's so funny. I mean, I was covering private equity at the time, yeah. and I remember July 3rd, uh, sitting at my desk late in the afternoon, looking forward to a little bit of a break, and within the span of an hour, KKR filed to go public, yeah. dropped their S1, and then literally within minutes, this uh, news release comes across that Blackstone is buying Hilton for roughly $20 billion. And it turned out, we didn't know it at the time, it turned out to be the last big deal of the biggest LBO boom 
ever. What I love about this, too, is you take a look at the timeline. You mentioned October of 07, but you take it to today. This timeline on the ownership of Blackstone and Hilton Worldwide, there were significant ups and downs here. Oh, I mean, unbelievable ups and downs to the to the extent that within months of this deal being announced, it was seen as <laughs> one of the worst deals, one of the worst time deals, because not only did you have the credit market seize up, which really was going to hamper uh, Blackstone's ability to really pay for it with the mix of cash and debt that they wanted to, but this was a consumer-facing business. Right. You know, this was a business that was and still does, obviously, rely on business travel and consumer travel. And Which as we got into stopped the, in As the we crisis. got into the Great Recession, yeah. that was the first thing to go. And I do remember from a personal perspective, I would run into Jonathan Gray on the street on Park Avenue. He'd be walking down from uh, from his house to the office. I'd be walking up from Grand Central, and he would. There were several times where he would end the call that he was on and stop me and say, "I've got to talk to you about Hilton. I've got to talk to you about how this is going to be a great deal." I was skeptical, along with many, many other people. He was absolutely right. And the numbers don't number. lie. I mean, this is amazing. This is one of the most read stories in Bloomberg right now. Blackstone will earn, has earned $14 billion. Triple its investment. Triple its investment over 11 years. It is seen to be, by people who watch this, the most profitable private equity deal of all time. I think it's just been fabulous to watch, especially Blackstone in particular. I mean, and they've been, they've been, you know, their exposure to real estate, right, overall, you know, different types of properties. And, and they've been gradually selling out of this, correct, for the last couple of years. That's right. It's been a very methodical mm-hmm. uh, sell down. There were a couple big moments where they, where they sold off. One was they sold the Waldorf Astoria to Anbang, the Chinese right. company. They also had another Chinese buyer of some of their stock uh, in Hilton uh, to H&A Group, which subsequently has sold, has been forced to sell uh, by the Chinese government. And even H&A made about $2 billion from that sale. So the stock has performed incredibly well. And you know, John Gray, to his credit, gives a lot of credit to the CEO there, Chris Nassetta, who mm-hmm. he personally recruited. They had known each other for a long time. And they, as you alluded to a few minutes ago, they endured some pretty dark times together. They had to renegotiate some debt. They had to inject yeah. uh, more equity in there. And, uh, you know, they're both coming out smiling. John Gray's got a new big job. And Chris Nassetta <laughs> has a, a very well-performing publicly traded company on his hands. I got to just say, our reporting on this also tells about when Blackstone began pursuing Hilton back in 06, and they internally named the transaction Project Murphy after the actor Eddie Murphy, of course, who starred in the movie Beverly Hills Cop. So that was kind of their like inside terminology to well, describe what they're doing. Exactly. And that was a reference briefly to, you know, Hilton was this company that was based in Beverly Hills. There right. were so many things they had to do with it. It yeah. was such an opportunity, uh, obvious to John Gray, maybe not to everyone else, but looks obvious now. Um, fascinating story, everybody, and I advise you to check out more. Just go to Bloomberg.com. Yeah, investors uh, definitely building up the share price of Deer today. Stock rallying following its latest quarterly update. Joining myself and Jason Kelly is Ann Dogman. She is Managing Director and U.S. Machinery Analyst over at J.P. Morgan Chase. And joining us once again on the phone in New York City. Hey, Ann, good to have you here with uh, Jason and myself. Uh, walk us through the quarter because investors certainly seem pleased. And as just uh, Jason pointed out earlier, it's not just about the ag sector. It's also about construction. Yeah, it's a good topic of discussion today because when we saw the numbers this morning, we thought, uh, you know, this was a bit of a miss on the revenue side, definitely a miss on the operating 
margin side. And frankly, we thought the stock might be under pressure today. However, you know, once we got into the conference call, management did a good job of um, talking about the strength of the backlog, frankly, in construction equipment. It's now stretching into 2019. They also, I think, were able to appease investors uh, around input costs and freight costs, which did weigh on the margins this quarter. Uh, they are introducing mid-year price increases on the construction side, and, and so those costs that they incurred this quarter will dissipate as we go forward. So I think what they left us all with was um, a brighter outlook for 2019. And you are right, it's more because of construction than because of agriculture, frankly. And Anne, tell us more about that construction opportunity there. You know, obviously, there have been some big questions around whether infrastructure was going to get a boost here in the United States. Where are they seeing this? Any context from, from management on where they're seeing that demand? Uh, yeah, no, we've seen it broadly across uh, Deer and Caterpillar and even some of the other smaller names. Um, you know, demand is booming out there, partially because non-residential construction is booming. You know, it's a very late cycle industry. Uh, and also oil and gas helps, right? When you've got this much oil production, you know, you think about it, you use a lot of construction equipment to build out all of those rigs, to build out all of the infrastructure, and then to keep all those wells running. So uh, it is boom times for uh, construction equipment right now, and we don't see it slowing in the near term. We think it'll be quite strong into next year as well. I got to ask you, though, I've been talking to a lot of folks in the real estate world out on the West Coast, also here. Um, People are, are very optimistic But folks are also saying we're wondering if we've topped out, and I'm wondering what that might mean then ultimately for deer. Uh, Good question, yes. Um, The one thing we do caution investors around is that non-residential construction is a very large segment, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And within that, you do have uh, sub-segments like office, which certainly seems like it's peaking. You have commercial, which certainly seems like it's peaking. But beyond that, you have, we're seeing significant strength in things like warehouses and things like infrastructure, airports, for example. Uh, and we're seeing very large projects uh, just starting in around different regions of the country, whether it's airports or roads in places like Texas. I mean, it's, it, it is a very mixed bag. And I would have to agree that we're not in the first inning of this cycle. We're probably in the seventh inning, but Mm -hmm. I'm not concerned that we're at the ninth inning yet. And, and, Anne, you mentioned Caterpillar and some of the other rivals, but let's talk about Caterpillar specifically. What what are the – sort of compare and contrast these two for us at this point, Deer and Caterpillar. I think the big difference between Deer and Caterpillar is Caterpillar is leveraged to the mining cycle, Mm. and that cycle we know is about a 10-year cycle, and we're only in year two of a recovery in spending in mining. Uh, And so for us, we think that there is much greater visibility into that end market. For deer, they're highly leveraged to the Midwest farmer, and frankly, uh, I was out in Iowa earlier this week speaking with farmers and dealers and industry folks. And, you know, the best we can characterize for U.S. agriculture is that the industry has kind of found a solid bottom. Things are not getting any worse. But with corn hovering around $4, 
that's not great for capital investment. Um, we are seeing some replacement demand, but you know it's it, it's not as easy an industry to forecast because those farmers can hold their equipment. Uh, for many, many years. They only put about 300 hours on a tractor every year. Hey, Anne, you're neutral on the stock. Um, You upgraded it from, though, underweight to neutral back in June of 2017. Stock's up about 25% since then. Just got about 20 seconds. You're going to maintain this call on it? Uh, At current valuation, yes, just while we have all those macro risks, whether it's NAFTA, whether it's the Farm Bill, whether it's China, you know, there still are a lot of risks out there that could negatively impact U.S. agriculture. But, you know, yeah. we'll look for an opportunity if the stock All looks right. attractive. Anne Dogman, she's Managing Director, U.S. Machinery Analyst over at J.P. Morgan Chase. So women today control more than 50% of the U.S. wealth or household assets, some $14 trillion, and almost half of women are the primary breadwinners in their households. Alexandra Tossig is Senior Vice President at Fidelity Investments. She oversees Fidelity's Women Investors Initiatives. She joins Jason Kelly and myself on the phone from Boston. Alexandra, great to be talking with you again. When you guys, because you guys at Fidelity have done a lot of work looking at women and when it comes to finance, investing, and saving, and so on, what have you guys broadly found? Okay, so a couple things, Carol. It's great to talk to you again, too. Um, So first off is, and this is a huge shout-out to women out there, is women actually, when we ran all our numbers, and we have millions and millions of um, customers, what we found is women actually save more than men when you kind of equalize for income. So that was the first finding. And then the second finding is that women actually get better investment returns when you equalize everything as well. And so when you look at the numbers and you and you take those um, differentials in savings and investing, and then you think about them over the long term and you kind of run the numbers, they make a huge difference. You know, it can be right. hundreds and thousands of dollars over the course of a person's life. So what we hope is that will instill confidence in women, but Unfortunately, our research also shows two things. One is that too often women are not what we call in the front seat when it comes to investing. So we do a a biannual survey, and only about 25% of women say, you know, I consider myself a primary decision maker with my partner when it comes to money and investing. So we call that they're kind of in the back seat. And then the second thing we found that um, kind of almost contradicts the first finding about women saving and investing more is that um, women just feel much less confident. So even though we actually do a very good job when we invest, we don't feel like we're doing a good job and not really believing it. So, Alexander, how do you change that perception then? Because that is – that would appear to be a hard thing to to really move. Are there specific things that you're doing or specific advice you're giving you're giving to to these women? Yeah, so we're doing actually a lot of things to change the perception and overall to get more women, what I would say, interested in the category and kind of in, uh, invested. So double entendre in the category. So. The first thing, and I think the most important thing we're doing, is just getting women to talk about money. And that was Carol and I were on a a panel 
a couple of weeks ago at Bloomberg. And, you know, there were a lot of women there. So women are really interested in this topic, and I think they want to lean into it. Um, so, so, but however, it's a taboo subject. So a lot of women say, you know, I'm more comfortable talking to my doctor than I am talking about money. Hmm. So the very, very first thing is to start talking about it. And we want to do that, though, in very kind of human, emotional terms. Like, as I, as I like to say, women, I, money is inextricably linked to your life. It's not like you have money on one side and life on the other side. You know, many, many life events have financial implications. And so kind of, you know, learning through storytelling and what happened to our friends and just talking about it. So the kind of that's the first step is to get women talking in kind of human emotional terms. Um, were you going to say something, Carol? Yeah, I just want to jump in for a second because it's funny. Like I, I dream of a world where we don't have to think about women's approaches to investings or, or women approaches to investings, men's approaches to investings, where we all kind of think about it in one big, wonderful pot. I mean, do we need to think about it differently for women and men in terms of investing and saving and so on? Well, I don't think we have to think about it differently, I think. But, you know, what we found is the reason why women actually are better investors is because what we do is we tie it more to goals, okay? So as I always like to say, you know, I'm married and I have three boys. And so my goals are really simple. Like I want to get my three boys through college, one of, one of which is in college, one of, the, one of which is going next year, and then retire with my husband. And so when I look at my investments, it's, you know, is Ben on track for college? Mm-hmm. Is Harry on track for college? Is Teddy on track? You know, when can Billy and I retire? So I look at money and investing in terms of how am I tracking against the goals. What we historically see with men, and when I say men, this is a generalization because some men may invest exactly like I do. But in general, men tend to be more concerned about performance and you know, and I'm I'm more concerned about my goals, and obviously performance is the means to get me to my goals. Mm-hmm. But I'm not; I'm less concerned about performance in the absolute. And am I beating the benchmark? It's not as though I never look at that. Right. But I'm more of the mind of, you know, when can Billy and I retire? Is and- Ben going to have enough for all four semesters? So I hope does that answer your question, Carol? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so so Alex, when you are are speaking to a woman who is just trying to get started, what what are some what's some you know, some of the proverbial, I guess, low hanging fruit? Like you talked about goals. What what's a good place to start if someone's really trying to get into this? And Alexander, we only okay. have about twenty seconds, so maybe one or one one good piece of advice. Okay, so so. One is get an emergency fund. That gives a tremendous peace of mind. And the two is if you have a 401k or workplace plan available, get started in that as early as you can. Both of those will pay pay huge dividends to you over the long term financially and emotionally. Great advice. Great to check in with you again. Alexander, be well. Alexander Tosig, she's Senior Vice President at Fidelity Investments, joining us on the phone from Boston. She blinded me with science. 
So we are now joined, Jason Kelly and Carol Masser here in New York, joined on the phone by our colleague Ellen Hewitt out in our San Francisco bureau. She's a startups reporter out there with a great story in this week's Bloomberg Business Week about robo-ethics. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Great to be with you. This story is is pretty phenomenal, and Carol and I uh, addressed it a bit in our Bloomberg Business Week yeah. television and, and radio shows. It's about Christian Lum. Ellen, tell us about who she is, because it's a name that has become more familiar over the past year or so. Right. If you've read a story in the last year or so about whether the algorithms that are increasingly you know, controlling our lives are fair, you know, or are actually reflecting in, you know, very deep set human biases, then there's probably a quote in there from uh, Christiane Lum. She is um, a statistician who has been studying kind of, yeah, this um, amplification, potential amplification of human biases in machine learning. And, and you're, it's important and increasingly important because you're starting to see um, programs like this, um, you know, taking in historical data, for example, related to crime data or maybe crime records, and then spitting out um, findings, you know, telling police which intersections in a city are most likely to have crime, um, telling judges maybe how likely someone is to recommit a crime, um, and and that becomes part of the judge's decision uh, about sentencing or parole. Ellen, is it as simple as the data that's being fed into computers and then machine learning and AI are all kicking in, that that data is racially um, tinted or biased, and that's why you sometimes or can get biased outcomes? Is it as simplistic as that? It's... You know, it is interesting. I think it is in some ways. You know, Christiane dis- discussed how people had been looking at data for a long time as this complete set and not examining how could it be missing certain parts? Like how could what it's showing be missing uh, unknown unknowns? Like we don't even know where it's missing parts um, of, of the whole data set. But she did also mention something else that I thought was interesting, which was that even if people can agree that there's bias and, and that, you know, we want to have fairness added to sort of counteract that, people actually have a hard time agreeing on what is fair, especially when you have to get as specific as maybe changing some mathematical um, formulas to show like, yeah, this is fairness. Um, Actually, that that tends to be quite a challenge. Ellen, one thing that we should certainly point out is that you've done some of the best work over the last year or two about harassment and and diversity or lack thereof in Silicon Valley. And and, and this is very personal for for Christiane Lum because she had an experience in the past year or in the past few years about that, that really changed the way that she thought about um, bias and and harassment. Uh, mm-hmm. That really, to say the least, went went viral. Tell us about that. Yeah. So in December, she wrote a blog post on Medium about harassment that she had experienced when she was an academic. So she had gotten her PhD and had been for a while an assistant research professor at Virginia Tech. And in that period of time, this was maybe you know, eight years ago to like five years ago, you know, she would go to academic conferences and she found she had these repeated experiences where prominent academics would make comments to her about, you know, she was dressed too sexy to be presenting like her dissertation and they would touch her leg. And when they went swimming, they, you know, she got groped by an academic and in her post, you know, she doesn't name them specifically. She talks about her experiences and reflects on how this changed her, the course of her career. She said she didn't realize it at the time, but she slowly gravitated away from working in academia and now works at a nonprofit, the Human Rights Data Analysis Group. And 
and after that post came out, I mean, it was definitely widely read within the statistics and machine learning community. And even though she didn't name one of those men, actually, um, you know, she she mentioned two men, and one of them ended up losing his job. He had been a, an AI researcher at Google, um, and and it, she said that it definitely sparked a conversation within. You know, I think every industry is sort of having their moment related right. to this, where, where in, you know, in statistics, in this academic world, it's, it's very tight-knit. And so she was very afraid of what might happen to her career if she posted this. But she said overall people have been very supportive, at least, you know, directly to her. So um, that's been heartening for her. And, right. and, yeah, it's definitely been something that she has felt moved to continue to talk about. as She felt that it really impacted her life and also, honestly, the other people that she talked to as well, not just her. Right. Well, and, and it's interesting because if you think about that context and the work that, that you wrote about in, in this particular piece, it is, as you say, sort of a moment where uh, this may actually start to, to gain some traction, this this uh, this ability or, or willingness to take the take the bias out. So in about 30 seconds, like, tell us, you know, what happens next here? What What's the next big step? I think that she said she was going to continue, you know, she's been, she said she's been invited to talk on panels about her experience in academia, but we just thought it was really important not only to highlight the contribution that she made in terms of speaking up about harassment in the industry, but connect that also to her work and highlight the work that she's doing. I think it's important to show sort of all sides of these, um, you know, these people who are making waves. Yeah, an important read, and it's also part of an important issue that's out uh, this week by Bloomberg Business Week. We'll get more on that in just a moment. Ellen Hewitt of Bloomberg News from our bureau in San Francisco. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, and riding along with us on this drive to the close is Eric Ristabin. He is the chief investment strategist at Russell Investments. They've got $298 billion. Nice chunk of change there, Eric. Thanks for joining us. Uh, So tell us what is going on. We've got equity markets that seem to be pushing higher and higher. How long can this last? Uh, well, we think it can last a few more months. Uh, look, global economic growth is is solid. Uh, we don't see a recession in our forecasting horizon over the next 12 months. Um, we think that probably on balance will continue to push equities up modestly. Uh, we think that the, probably the most challenged part of the equity market right now is the U.S. equity market because it's very expensive in our opinion. Uh, and uh, you're going to see this kind of classic late cycle battle between uh, interest rates and, and equity valuations. I think you've seen it play out this week so far, and that's probably going to continue for a while. Eric, what's the case, though, for not maybe, since you say maybe not a recession for another year, 12 months here, why not start to position yourself in a more defensive, uh, you know, posture at this point because of the anticipation of things maybe starting to go awry? Well, one, yeah, I actually, Carol, I, I actually would suggest that people be thinking about what happens when bad things start happening. Um, you know, we're a multi-asset investor. We believe very strongly in diversification. Uh, you know, asset classes like 
commodities are actually usually quite helpful late in the cycle because they tend to keep up with inflation. Um, I think there's a lot of concern out there that people have around bonds because mm-hmm. they've seen interest rates move up fairly significantly over the last you know few months, and and um, based on an increased an anticipation of inflation. And I think people have been worried about owning bonds, but our view is is that the the yield rise is largely over, um, and that you know you're really going to want to own bonds if you see a major risk off event. And if you know that's the case, then you know it's a very strong case for for, for owning bonds at this point. And Eric, how are you feeling about the Fed at this point in terms of you know as Jay Powell gets more comfortable uh, in his seat and and the team around him, are they going at the pace you expected? What, what's the outlook there? Yeah, no, we, we've been kind of expecting uh, kind of three to four a year. Um, we, you know, this right now we're kind of right exactly between three and four for all of 2018. Um, that is historically an extraordinarily modest pace. Um, but yeah, we 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 think it, the the more interesting things than what, what's been happening on on the curve as a whole, because you've seen the two year interest rates rise much more dramatically than the ten year. That yield curve flattening, um, we think, actually will lead to inversion probably late this year, early next year, and and that is a that's a sign that you need to take seriously. What's the black swan, the gray swan that's out there? Is it the U.S. China trade relations and the talks and how they go? I, I maybe. I mean, I, I think at this point we, we view a lot of the the tariff talk and, and the protectionism um, really as more of a negotiating standpoint, a stance from both sides of the on um, both sides of the aisle that we don't really expect a trade war because, you know, counter to what other people may maintain, trade wars are hard to win and usually nobody does win. Um, and I think that the the market will continue to send that signal anytime the, that tension t- intensifies. Look, I, I think the real issue though is. Is, is valuations. Risk assets are expensive. Um, and, and I think that that is the thing that, that people need to be thinking about as they, they think about how to structure their portfolio. A balanced, well-diversified approach at this point we think makes sense. Um, so, wait, at some wait, point, so Eric, so your call then is really just, a, it's, is it just a valuation call or because the economic and market fundamentals um, are starting to come undone? I, it's a little bit of both. I mean, right now, because we don't see the the economic fundamentals deteriorating significantly for the you know this year, um, we're not really thinking that's the the cause. But I think what we've seen is incredible earnings for first quarter and stocks. U.S. stocks have done nothing. Um, I think that is really reflective of the fact that the market is aware that U.S. stocks are really expensive. So I think the cautionary tale around U.S. stocks is valuation. Um, we think there's a better story outside the U.S. and developed in emerging markets. And so. How do you factor in, if you can, this geopolitical backdrop, Eric? I mean, obviously, it plays in through tariffs. It plays in through oil. How do you synthesize all that when when you try and make sense of it all? Yeah, I think, well, the oil movement that we've seen over the last few months, I think, is largely based on fundamentals of supply and demand, right? Good economic data um, and restricted supply. Um, the tension, in, you know, potentially with Iran is, is, is something that, that may be in the background. But geopolitical events, as we've learned over the last decade, rarely actually manifest themselves into major risk kind of concerns and events. Really um, you go back to Syria, Libya, the Crimea. I mean, there's a whole host of, of, of examples that people were worried about but never came to fruition. Um, you don't need to worry about them until you need to worry about them, and it's almost impossible to predict which ones you're going to need to worry about. Eric, what kind of new money are you guys seeing coming in, or has it kind of settled down? 
Um, I think the I think from the retail investor perspective, you're seeing still money, a ton of money on the sideline. Uh, I don't think people are feeling um, like they want to put assets to work. Uh, I, I think the the area that we're talking a lot to our clients about is um, the concern that people have over bonds because you know in a risk off event, um, right. treasuries are going to rally. Cash doesn't rally. It, it although it does do a good job of protecting principal. Right. Um, preservation never a bad idea. <laughs> Sorry, never a bad idea. Idea, but yeah, you know, it's also not bad making money too. Eric, thank you so much. Eric Ristabin, he is chief investment strategist over at Russell Investments on the phone from Seattle. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. 